0: You are listening to audio from Creekside Community Church. If you'd like to learn more about Creekside, find out about our services and upcoming events, or listen to other sermons, please visit CreeksideCommunity.org. Good morning, Creekside. Good to see all of you uh, this morning. And if this is your first time with us, welcome. We're really glad you're here uh, like to give you a, uh, a gift of appreciation for coming that you can get after the service out at the uh, information desk we have uh, a coffee tumbler a water bottle or a sippy cup or a combination of the above those are for you next Sunday we after almost two years we're going to start having our pastor's coffee again after second service and so this is a time that uh, if you're kind of new to our church who would like to to meet the pastoral staff and find out a little bit about Creekside, this is the time to come. So that's 1130, uh, just down the hall in the back here, the middle school room, but love to have you come. Just, uh, just, we just talk about a little bit uh, uh, about who we are and get to know you and you get to know us, but that's, uh, that's what's coming. Until recently, whenever I, I thought about the story of Noah, I always focused on the pre-flood Noah. Uh, How Noah, when God warned him about the coming flood, believed God, even though believing him meant he had to drop everything else he was doing and get ready for the flood. And uh, spending years preparing the ark uh, and and through which he saves his family and and saves the animals and more importantly becomes an heir of the righteousness according to faith because every time in the Bible. We see the words, a person is righteous, they're righteous because they believe God. And because Noah believed God and prepared, that's always been a great reminder to me that if I believe God, I will will prepare for the things God says will surely come in the future. But in reading Genesis 9, which we're going to look at this morning, I realized really, in a lot of ways, the most important part of the story of Noah isn't what happens before the flood, but it's what happens after the flood. Because God gives the world a fresh start. And I think we all know how attractive fresh starts are, don't we? I mean, how many times have you thought, boy, if I knew then what I know now, I would have done it so much differently. If I could just have a do-over, if I could just have another chance. And, and I think that's why a lot of people uh, leave jobs, leave careers, leave churches, leave states, leave spouses, because they think, if I could just start over, everything will be better. Well, maybe, maybe not. Do I really need a fresh start is, is the question we're going to talk about this morning. God judged the world through the flood But he also saved the world through the flood because the days of Noah are the worst days of history. Uh, The the days that preceded the flood there was no law except kill or be killed. No protection for the weak. People were brutal and violent and the human race was well on its way of, of exterminating itself long before God could fulfill the promise to send a Savior. And so as as Noah and his family leave the ark, they enter a world unlike the world they knew prior. And, And as we look at Genesis 9 this morning, I want to look at two things very simply. What's new and then what's not? What's changed and what hasn't changed? And I think it will give us a unique perspective on the whole idea of getting a fresh start. So let's pray. Father, we know we cannot love you without loving your word because it's by your word that you revive us and teach us and instruct us and bless us. We pray you'll be our teacher. We'll take this complicated book and apply it to our lives by your spirit. Thank you that you've given us the spirit that we may know freely the things that are taught to us by God. So we pray you'll be our teacher this morning. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In Genesis 9, three new things stand out. And, and the first new thing that we, we learn as Noah and his family enter this new world is they have a new diet. Look what, uh, and God bless Noah and his sons, and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Ever hear that before? It's exactly what he told Adam and Eve. So we're, we're kind of, Noah is, is like the next Adam. The fear of you and the terror of you will be on every beast of the earth and on every bird of the sky with everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea and into your hand they are given. Every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you, I give all to you as I gave you the green plant. Only you shall not eat the flesh with its life, that is its blood. Up to this point, it seems like human beings were vegetarians. That—that that Adam, God says to Adam and Eve, every green plant I've given to you for food. From now on, people will also be able to eat meat. Now this may be because... After the flood, the world has changed, and there's far less cultivatable land than there was prior to the flood. Uh, We know that from fossil evidence that, that Arctic regions like Siberia and Antarctica were once covered with tropical forests. Apparently at some time in the world's history, there was a uniform temperature around the whole world. But after the flood, there there are extremes of heat and cold. There are seasons, as we learn in Genesis 8. There are deserts. There are Arctic regions. There are swamps. There is just less land. It's, it's, It's the world we know today. There is less land and less time during the year that that land can be cultivated. So perhaps God tells human beings, you will now eat meat as well as plants, because their diet requires us. But to protect the animals, God also says, I will put the fear of you in all animals. Apparently up to this point, animals did not fear people because people weren't predators. People were just other plant eaters. And that explains why all the animals could come to Noah and get on the ark without any problems like that. But from this point on, God puts the fear of human beings in animals for their own protection. Apparently, the family of deer that live in our neighborhood didn't get the memo, because whenever I try to chase them out of my yard because they're munching on our flowers, they just give me a dull look, like protected species, baby. And 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 uh, by the way, because you plant some more rhododendrons, it's getting a little sparse in your garden. In any case, God, but God does give human beings one restriction in their diet he says, don't eat blood. And this becomes a theme that runs throughout the Bible. It's a very important theme as the story of the Bible develops. In, In the Bible, blood symbolizes life. And because God is the giver of life, life belongs to God. And so God says that when you eat the meat, you're not to eat it with its blood. And this becomes the basis for the Jewish sacrificial system and ultimately for, for the Christ's death on the cross as a picture of Christ giving his blood, giving his life for us so that we can be reconciled to God. So, so all, how does all this apply to us? Well, in the West we have so much food that we can be very picky about what we eat and, and, and for a lot of people today, Food has become a religion. It's, it's like, it's more, for some people, it is morally wrong to eat meat, or to eat sugar, or to eat processed foods. It, it becomes a religious article of faith, doesn't it? The New Testament says all foods are clean. That God doesn't really care what we eat. That, that as he, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8, food will not commend you to God. You are neither the better if you do not eat or the worse if you do eat. Now, there's healthy foods and unhealthy foods, but in terms of your relationship with God, what you eat is not going to affect your relationship with God. And because God gives us freedom in what we can eat, we're to give each other freedom in what we eat. That's why Paul says in Romans 14 to a church made up of Jews who were kosher and Gentiles who were not kosher, He says, accept one another and not for the purpose of passing judgment on one another's faith. One man has faith that he may only eat vegetables. Another man has faith that he can eat all things. Let each be fully convinced of his mind. Let not him who does not eat judge him who eats, for God has accepted him. Let not him who eats regard with contempt him who doesn't eat, for God has accepted him. In other words, give each other. Don't divide over food. Don't look down on a Christian whose diet is donuts, um, fruit loops, and nachos, because God is accepted. Got it? That's the point. So God gives us the first new thing. First new thing in this new world is a new diet. Second thing and more significant, in some ways, in the story of the Bible, is a new command. God has just talked about how blood represents life. And he follows this up with a command he's never given before. Surely, I will require your lifeblood from every beast I will require it. And from every man, from every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed, for in the image of God he made man. As for you, be fruitful and multiply, populate the earth abundantly and multiply in it. God says whoever sheds a man's blood, his life must be forfeit. This is a a command that's never been given before. Remember what the world is like before the flood. It It is a place where there is no law. There is no protection for the weak, where life has no value at all. It is family against family, tribe against tribe. The human race is well on its way toward genocide. And so now in this new world, God establishes that every single life is precious because every single human being is made in the image of God. And therefore, if someone murders, their life is to be taken. Scholars of the Bible see this as as establishing human government. Because, as Paul says in Romans 13, God established government for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. That God has established government to protect human life. People who hold the pro-life position go back to this command, that because life is precious, every life is precious, and therefore that goes before every other consideration. People who believe in the just war theory, that if a government wantonly takes human life, it is the responsibility of other governments to intervene in order to protect life. So we've got all kinds of controversial issues here, capital punishment, abortion, war, but it is all based And the reason we're having a discussion anyway is all based that God says life is so precious, every life is so precious that it's I require a life for a life. And so for us, what that means is the way we look at people who are different from us, racially different, nationally different, politically different, economically different, if we don't value them with the same way we value ourselves, we do not believe in the God of the Bible. That, that's the point here that every single life is precious. And so, this new command God gives from this point onward, murder must be punished because people are created in the image of God. New diet a new command, and finally a new covenant. Jeff talked about the idea of covenant last week because we first find the word covenant in the Bible, in the story of Noah. God says to Noah back in chapter 6 that I am going to establish my covenant with you. Do you remember what a covenant is? Good, I want to review it then. Covenant is an agreement based on promises right? And so there are marriage covenants, there are business covenants, there are national covenants, there are also covenants between God and man, and God will operate through these covenants throughout the story of the Bible. In the Bible, there are conditional covenants and there are unconditional covenants. Conditional covenants is where each side has responsibilities. God says in the law, that's a covenant he makes through Moses, obey me and I will bless you. Don't obey me, and you'll be cursed. But there are also unconditional covenants, which is only on God's side, which God says, here is what I will do regardless of what you do. And the covenant with Noah is one of these unconditional covenants. Let's read it. Then God spoke to Noah and to his sons with him, saying, now behold, I myself do establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you, and with every living thing that is with you, the birds, the cattle, and every beast of the earth with you, of all that comes out of the earth, even every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you. Who is this, this covenant between? God and all life. See that? I establish my covenant with you, and all flesh shall never again be cut off by the water of the flood. Neither shall there again be a flood to destroy the earth. God said, this is the sign of a covenant which I am making between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all successive generations. I set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be for a sign of a covenant between me and the earth It shall come about when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow will be seen in the cloud and I will remember my covenant which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. God promises that he will never again destroy the world by water. And the sign of the covenant is the rainbow. Why would the rainbow be the sign of the covenant. Apparently, the first time rain appeared on the earth was when the flood came. Before then, the scripture says that the the plants were watered from a mist that rose up out of the ground. It was kind of like your drip system in in your yard. But the first time rain appears, God destroys the earth. And so to remind people of his covenant that he is never going to destroy the earth again when it starts to rain, don't panic. It's okay because the rainbow is a reminder that I have promised I will never again destroy it, no matter what you do. No matter what happens on earth, I will never destroy the world again by water. That's his promise, It's an assurance. You see that? Now, there is another unconditional covenant in in the Scripture, and that's the New Covenant, where God promises to give eternal life to all those who put their faith in Christ. It is not dependent on us. It's dependent on God. It's not dependent on my behavior. It's dependent on what Christ has done. And God uses the covenant with Noah as a picture of that New Covenant. I've skipped this part, it it says what I just told you. Okay, so move move on. Can we go to the next slide? Thank you. Is there not an Isaiah passage there? Did, Did I forget to put the Isaiah passage in? Isaiah, is it there? Oh, there it is, okay. Good. That's the whole key to the whole passage. For this is like the waters of Noah to me. He's talking about the new covenant that he is prophesying he will make through the Messiah with all people. This is like the waters of Noah to me. For as I have sworn that the waters of Noah would no longer cover the earth, so have I sworn that I will not be angry with you nor rebuke you. For the mountains shall depart and the hills be removed, but my kindness shall not depart from you, nor shall my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord, who has mercy on you. God says, the new covenant I will make with you through Christ will be just like the covenant I made with Noah. It will never change. I will never turn back from it. Um, Jesus said, he who comes to me, I will in no way cast out. I am with you forever. I will never leave you or forsake you. Paul says in Timothy, even when we are faithless, he remains faithful. Faithful, for he cannot deny himself. And that's a great thing to remember: is that we're not hanging on to Christ. Christ is hanging on to us. Our salvation is dependent on his promise, his covenant. This covenant cannot be shaken. And just as the world has not never been destroyed by water again, as God promised. So our covenant with God through Christ is permanent and cannot be shaken. And that's a good thing. Now, the scripture says that one day the earth will become as bad as it was in the days of Noah, become just as evil, and God will destroy the earth again, this time with fire. But those who have put their faith in Christ, those who have, 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 have entered this new covenant with God, will live in a new heavens, in a new earth, where righteousness dwells, where there is no war, no suffering, no sorrow, no disease, no pain, where the lion lays down with the lamb, the, the little child has a cobra for a pet. It's a great covenant, isn't it? New diet, new command, new covenant. Anything else new? Well, all the other new things would just be speculative. One thing you'll notice as, as we after the flood, people began to live the same length of life that they live today. No longer do you have people living for centuries as you did before the flood. The Bible never tells why that is true. My speculation is the longer people live, the worse we get. And so to forestall the effects of sin... On the world, God just has us around here for a shorter amount of time. By the way, if you look at the the flood myths of other ancient civilizations, they have people living for thousands and thousands and thousands of years, and so the centuries that are described in, in Genesis 1 through 6 of people living are pretty conservative. But In any case, people live a shorter time. There's seasons, as we already said. There's extremes of heat and cold that weren't there before. It seems like reading between the lines that there was one land mass and one mass of sea before the flood. After the flood, the earth is divided into continents. There's now mountains now and deep oceans that weren't there before. But these are more based on speculation and fossil evidence and things like that. But these are the main things. So that's what's new, okay? What's not? Well, what's not new is us. We have new environment, same old people which I think Genesis 9 is emphasizing that the problems in the world are caused by people. Let's see what what hasn't changed. Now, the sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the whole earth was populated. That means everybody in this room is a relative. That we all are descendants of Noah. We're all descendants of one of his three sons, okay? That's why we're a family. Then Noah began farming and planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and uncovered himself inside his tent. This is the first time wine and the effects of wine are ever mentioned in the Bible. Noah may have been the first winemaker and therefore the first person to discover that when you drink too much fermented grape juice it makes you a little crazy. The passage here does not condemn Noah. Noah is the most righteous man on the earth. I think he just accidentally discovered this fact and he was a sleepy drunk so he just passed out in his tent, but his robe was open and he was exposed. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Now, some people, some students of the Bible have suggested that Ham, Noah's son, somehow sexually abused his father because seeing someone's nakedness is often a phrase that's used in the Bible to uh, connote sexual experience. But I don't think there's anything in this text that 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 uh, indicates that Ham's sin is mocking his father, disrespecting his father. In fact, this word where it says that. That he told his brothers outside that the Hebrew word is he told them with delight. You'll never believe what dad did. What a jerk. So Ham's sin is mocking his father. And you can see that from the contrast between how Ham treats his father and how his other sons, Shem and Japheth treat him. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it upon their shoulders and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father, and their faces were turned away so they did not see their father's nakedness. So they treat their father, and by extension God, with respect, by honoring their father Ham treats his father with mockery and derision. And and Ham's sin is a sin I'm very familiar with because when I was a younger Christian, my friends and I, we loved to mock people. We loved to to laugh at people behind their backs because by making people small, it made us feel big. By making people look foolish, it made us feel smart. I know none of you have ever done that. But just say that I I understand what Ham, Ham has done. When Noah awoke from his wine... He knew what his youngest son had done to him. How did he know? Because everybody in the family is talking about it. So he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants. He shall be to his brothers. Now, if Ham sinned, why does his son Canaan get cursed? And why didn't Noah curse all of Ham's sons? Why just Canaan? Well, as it turns out, this is not so much a curse as it is a prophecy about the descendants of Noah's three sons, which will not be fulfilled for centuries, even millennia. So let me see if I can explain this. Noah also said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. Shem is the son through whom the line of the Messiah will come. And so Israel will be in the line of Shem. And, and so when God appears to Abraham in Genesis 12, He says, "If you will leave your father's household, leave your father's, uh, leave your father, your father's household, and your nation, and go to the land, I will show you. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and I will bless all the families of the earth through you. Meaning, I'm going to bring Messiah through you." So God says. So in Noah's prophecy, He says, "Shem will be blessed." And then his brother Japheth will be blessed as well in the tents of Shem. And so this isn't fulfilled until the New Testament when God brings Jews and Gentiles together in Christ and the Gentiles become part of spiritual Israel. But what does he mean, let Canaan be his servant? Let Canaan be Shem's servant. Let Canaan be Japheth's servant. Centuries ago, European Christians used to use this this passage as a justification for the enslavement of Africans. They said the descendants of Canaan are Africans. They were created by God to be servants. Well, as my old friend Holy Hubert at Cal used to say, read on, sinner, because (laughs) because if you read chapter 10, it tells you who the descendants of Canaan are. They're not Africans. They're the Canaanites, duh. They are the, they are the tribes that lived in the promised land prior to the time that Israel would be there. The Amorites, the Amalekites, the Midianites, the Sidonites, C- the Mosquito bites, you know, all, all those guys, they are the descendants of Canaan. So when Moses writes Genesis, Israel is just getting ready to go into the land and to liberate the promised land from all of these tribes. So you say, why does God treat the Canaanites like this? Well, archaeologists tell us that the culture of the Canaanites was probably the most depraved culture known in history. They practiced regularly every sort of Of sexual deviancy. They sacrificed their children to their idols. They were brutal. They were merciless. They were violent people. And God gave them 400 years to repent and they wouldn't repent. And so when God sends Israel into the land, he says you're to wipe them out lest you learn their ways and become a snare for you. Well, of course, Israel doesn't obey because they never obey. Instead of wiping them out, they intermarry with them, and the sins of the Canaanites become the sins of Israel for the next 900 years until Assyria and Babylon invade Israel, take away its people into captivity, and it's not until the Jews return from that captivity that they've finally been cured of the sins of the Canaanites and become a truly separated people. So that sin of Ham, which was only seen in in his disrespect for his father and his mocking of his father, now becomes full blown centuries later in the descendants of Canaan as they reproduce the culture of the days of Noah before the flood. That makes sense? So, what we see is what begins as a small, petty, silly little sin over the centuries affects a whole group of nations. See the point? So can you see where, where Moses is going with Genesis 9? We've got a new world, but the new world still has the same problems. And that's underlined by the last verses of chapter 9. Noah lived 350 years after the flood, so all the days of Noah were 950 years and he died. Even though we have a new world, even though we have a fresh start, Noah, the most righteous man on earth, still dies. Sin and its effects still reign. So even though God gives people a fresh start, even though he gives them a brand new environment, they're still the same people. And that's the problem with fresh starts. The problem with the world is people. And unless you change people, fresh starts will prove an illusion. I was part of a book group for, for many years, and uh, we read a novel and, and discuss it every month. And I'll never forget one of the meetings. Uh, a good friend of mine who brought me into the group announced in the middle of the group that, that after a long marriage and two grown daughters... He was leaving his wife. And everybody in the group was shocked. We we couldn't believe it. Well, he excused himself, and and everybody else hung around for a while. And the, the interesting thing to me is most of the people in this group were divorced and remarried. And yet there was a profound sadness. And person after person says, you know, I'm happily married now. But I wish we would have made it work. I wish I would have hung in. I wish I would have tried harder. I, I, I wish that that fresh start didn't really prove to be a fresh start. See, it's easy to think all of my problems are out there. But Jesus said that it's out of the heart that arises all sin that our problem isn't what comes from the outside, our problem is what comes from the inside. And until you change the inside of people, nothing will be changed. That's the point of chapter 9. God gives humanity a fresh start, and we still make a a mess of it because we're still slaves of sin. And, And that's why the gospel is such good news, Because unlike religion, the gospel doesn't say, try harder, be better. Jesus says, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. You're not a sinner because you sin. You sin because you're a sinner. That's part of our nature. That's what comes out in this silly little story. We have this grand new created world, and then we have this silly little family story that shows that nothing has really changed and that sin is still at work and still corrupting and still growing. It's like the flood is a surgical strike. It prolongs the life of the patient, but it doesn't cure him because he can't be cured until the great physician comes, and that's why Jesus says, if the Son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. And that's why we need a Savior. Jesus becomes a human being to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. He he lives the life that we fail to live so that God can credit his perfect record of righteousness to those who put their faith in him. He dies the death we deserve to die. He pays the penalty for our sins on the cross so that God can pardon us. And then he rises from the dead so that we can live forever. And when I recognize that I am a slave to sin, that I cannot cure myself, that there's nothing I can do to change myself, and and I call out to him for salvation, he comes into my life, kills the old me, the slave to sin, resurrects a new me in which he lives. And the more I depend on him, the more my life changes. I, I mark, my fresh start from the time I was 20 years old and Christ came into my life. And my life has never been the same since. And it's not because I got religion. It's not because I started hanging around churches. It's not. It's nothing I did. I'm not hanging on to him. He's hanging on to me. And so if you're not a Christian, you will never defeat your biggest enemy which is what lives in you. Nobody ever has. I was talking to a guy last week outside the church and he was moaning and bewailing how bad he was, how evil he was, how, what a mess of his life he was making. And yet when I suggested that there's a way out, he didn't want anything to do with it because he couldn't let go of that desire to control his own life. And that's the essence of our slavery to sin, is we've gotta be in control. We can't trust someone else to guide us and to save us. So if you're not a Christian, the only real fresh start I know that's available is coming, giving yourself to Christ and asking him to save you and make you a brand new person. Now, if you are a Christian, this is an important lesson for us today the world is broken because people are broken. And it is so easy to think the problem in the world is this system or that system, these people or those people, this government or that government, this environment or that environment, my neighbor, my neighbor's dog. You know, we, we look at the problems in our life as, the, as if there's something outside of us That's not true. Remember what Jesus said? He said, why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye and do not see the log that is in your own eye? First take the log out of your own eye and then you'll see clearly to take the speck from your brother's eye. As long as I blame my problems on people outside of me or systems outside of me or events outside of me, I have no control. What I have control over is myself. I had a good friend who worked for a long time as an executive in the Silicon Valley. And he was a, a strong believer and eventually his integrity got him into trouble with some of the higher ups and and uh, they moved him out of his executive position and put him on a and and uh, he eventually retired as a result of that. But he had a very interesting comment about that. He says, it doesn't matter what happens to me. What, ha- what matters is how I respond to what happens. He saw where the real battle was. The battle, his battle wasn't with the political maneuverings in his company. That wasn't the battle. The battle was with sin inside of him, and if he could conquer that, that's where he would get joy. That's where he would get happiness. I've never forgotten that, and I found that to be true as well, that when I get my eyes off of other people and off of circumstances and off of all these things and I focus on fixing me and I focus on the battle with sin inside of me, that's where I find peace and I find joy. Genesis 9, a fresh start? Kind of. But that fresh start is doomed because the problem of sin is not fixed until Jesus comes. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word and how it ultimately speaks to every issue we face. I pray we'll be wise enough to listen. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.